have to fear is fear itself. My balls are hot. My balls are hot. My balls are hot. My balls are hot. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Another episode of the Whiskey, Beer, and Conspiracy Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Big Country. Uh, as always, unfortunately, none of my co-hosts are with me this morning. That's okay. Um, it's a, a different time that we're doing a recording today, but we do have a very special guest, someone that I am very excited to talk to. I'm glad he's here with us today. He's taking some time out of his schedule to have a discussion with us. Uh, Mr. Dr. Thomas Cowan is in the house. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? Very well. Very well. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show with us. We appreciate it. And tell me your name. What should I call you again? You, you could just call me Brian if you want to. Brian. Big country is just a handle that I use, but my name is Brian. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, before we get started, um, for everyone listening or who is going to be watching this, uh, the video portion of it, whether you're watching on Rockfin, Rumble, Twitch, Odyssey, wherever you're at, um, I had read Dr. Cowan's book, Contagion Myth last year. This one, this one right here, Contagion Myth. It might be a little blurry. Um, and I remember seeing the video that kind of went viral early on during the the rollout of COVID with the 5G, Wuhan, all that stuff. Um, and so that's what sparked my interest in my wife and I doing research in germ theory versus terrain theory and viruses and vaccines. And at the time, my wife and I were having our first child. Um, who's two now, and so we got his other one of one of his other books, I should say, The Nursing Traditions. It's also written by oh, so blurry, written with Miss um, Sally Fallon, and I we literally use this book. Uh, I won't say probably daily because he's a pretty healthy kid, but something pops up, we look in there, we do some more research, we make the best judgment. But um, uh, yeah, Doctor Cowan, I can't thank you enough for the publications because it's really opened my family's life to new things that I was completely unaware of and because of that my son is not vaccinated he eats an organic gluten-free non-gmo diet uh runs around outside we don't have any fear or worry about you know germs on a doorknob you know attacking him with measles or whatever so um very excited to have you on that was a long-winded intro <laughs> so. it's okay i glad it's working out for you mm-hmm mm -hmm. absolutely um, so now I saw you on Eddie Bravo's show. Um, Eddie Bravo is a homie. I, I actually met him at a, at a comedy show that he did with Sam Tripoli. We both are in the jujitsu world. Obviously he's way, way bigger than we ever are, but, um, you're talking about viruses and germ theory and all that stuff and how they said that they had, um, specifically, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, isolating a vi. They've isolated the virus and how that, they never have publicly, and they say that in papers, but then they'll say that they have in papers, and then you went through examples of how they do it, and it's kind of a little bit more convoluted than people understand. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I think if, if, if the goal is to get people to understand this, this issue, it's, I think, important to start at the beginning. Okay. If you're okay with that, that's Absolutely. what I would do. Absolutely. And so when I say start with this issue, what is the issue? And the issue is very simple. It's, uh, is there such a thing as contagion? And I'll define that in a minute. And is there such a thing as a virus? Uh, and I would contend that the answer to both of those is there is no such thing as contagion and there is no such thing as a virus. Wow. So let's start at the beginning here um so there's certain historical time and by the way whenever i do this with people i i really encourage you if you hear something that doesn't make sense that you play the role of of trying to clarify it for your audience like that doesn't work and i don't know what what you mean by that or sure. something like that sure so there's a whole lot of different places you could start, but the best way to start is 
most people, I would even say pretty much everybody, has had the experience of uh, of getting the same or similar symptoms at the same time as other people get those symptoms, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, people talk about chicken pox parties. They talk about, I got <laughs> the flu from somebody. They talk about there's an outbreak of something, you know, going around, et cetera, right? Everybody right. has that experience. And so let me just say the principle behind that is that if you see, you know, two or more people, or you could say animals, uh, getting the similar or same symptoms at the same time <laughs> in the same place, that means something has been transmitted between those people. Right. Is that fair enough? Sure. Uh, so let's take an example of that. You take uh, 100 rats and you put them in the basement. And unbeknownst to you, somebody puts rat poison there in the basement. Next day, 10 rats all bleed to death. Next day, another 10 rats. Next day, all 80 rest of the rats are all dead. They all same place, same time. They all had the similar symptoms. Does that mean that they had something contagious pass between them? I would assume so. <laughs> yeah, you put rat poison down. There. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say that the answer is they all got poisoned by the rat poison. Right, right. And that's not contagious. Correct, yes. That nothing was transmitted between those rats. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. You agree? I agree. So the principle that seeing the same symptoms at the same time in the same place does not prove transmission. Right. Here's another example. For hundreds of years, they noticed that sailors on ships got sick, their teeth fell out, they went into heart failure and died. They said something was being transmitted, and they put them in quarantine to stop the transmission. Mm -hmm. and they wouldn't let them get off the ships because they would spread the disease to the whatever the town was that they landed. And they all died. And then somebody gave them a lemon or a lime to eat and they got all better because it turns out they had scurvy yeah did they use um sauerkraut as well sauerkraut too. yeah mm -hmm. so the question so same thing people same symptoms same time same place one after another so i think you would probably agree that does not prove transmission of an illness right and in fact, the reason I use that example is some people will say, well, Tom, it doesn't matter what the cause is. I, I think it's pretty clear that in that case, if you said it was a transmissible infectious disease and quarantined them, they 100% died. And if you gave them sauerkraut or a lemon, they got all better. In which case, from my point of view, especially if you were one of those people, it made a huge difference what the cause was. Right. And I could give you a hundred more examples uh, of that. In fact, one of the interesting things about chickenpox is they noticed uh, chickenpox really started in this country, uh, you know, 40s and 50s. Turns out the same time they were using, using uh, wallpaper that was painted with arsenic. <laughs> And the arsenic gas was uh, was outgassing <laughs> into the room, and the symptoms of of arsenic outgassing poisoning are, you know, you get sick and you have rashes with blisters, and so people noticed that when they children went to somebody's house who had chickenpox, probably they had new wallpaper, they got chickenpox, but when people came to their house, they didn't get chickenpox because they didn't have new wallpaper. Wow. And so you saw some, you had a chicken pox party, but it only worked if you went to the people's houses who had the new wallpaper. Holy cow. Where you go is to crazy. the people's house who have chicken pox, but they got it from the wallpaper house, then you don't get chicken pox and you don't see it spread. You know that you bring that up what's so interesting is because I was a 90s kid I got the chicken pox. My sister got the chicken pox right around, right around the same time. 
um, but was really big in the 90s was like it was wallpaper, but it was like strips so wide and you'd wrap uh, uh, you'd wrap it around your room like a border. And I had that. And I, I kind of wonder if there was something in that or yeah. whatever it may have been at that time that uh, it was giving us the chicken pox. Right. So I, I think at this point, just let me see if you agree. The, the, the notion that similar people are, are, are people who get same symptoms, same time, same place, does not prove transmission. Correct. Yes, 100% agree. So then uh, what was interesting is then people, and we're talking late 1800s up to about 1940, there was many, many what are called contagion or transmission studies. Mm -hmm. The most famous was Rossino in 1918 flu. And I, I've seen some with mono and the flu and chicken pox and all the rest. So what they did was they took uh, people who had like the Spanish flu. Okay. And they exposed them to healthy people who never had the flu. Okay. And they exposed them by putting them in the same room, by having them cough in their open mouth, by oh. sucking, you know, mucus snot out of their nose and injecting it up their nose, by taking blood and injecting that in them and other ways like that. And the, this was done by the Boston health department, zero out of approximately a hundred prisoners. They used prisoners as the volunteers <laughs> uh, got sick. Tight. Zero. Wow. And I've seen probably 20 other contagion studies. Most of the time, zero people get sick. Wow. There was one very interesting one with the flu uh, where, just to mention this, they had uh, a control group. It was a good study. They, they injected half of the people, the volunteers, with, and told them this is snot from somebody who had the flu. And the other half, they injected them with saline, right? But they didn't tell them that. Okay. So they didn't tell them. And it turns out that the ones they injected with uh, the snot, 15% of them got the, uh, hang on a minute, 10% of them got the flu. Okay. And or the, it's the other way around, 15%. And the one they injected with snot from somebody who was sick with the flu, 10% got sick. Okay. So the conclusion of that study, and it wasn't repeated, so I haven't seen that, is that... 10 to 15% of the people, if you just tell them we're going to do something to get you sick, they'll get sick. But the number drops if you actually inject them with snot. And if you inject them with nothing, it's 15%. And so the only conclusion you could draw is there is a mildly protective effect from being snot, shot up your nose with snot from a, from a sick person. Oh, okay. Right? In other words, no evidence of contagion. There was an evidence that if you think you're going to get sick, you might. Not that much, but around 10 to 15%. But it's a little bit less if you actually get exposed. And so, right. in other words, a way to get more people sick who you, who you tell will get sick, uh, or a way to get have less people get sick, is to actually expose them to sick people. Mm -hmm. Exactly the opposite of what we did. So here's the, that's the first step in, quote, virology, which is to say, uh, as far as we can tell, there is not one study in the published medical scientific literature that has demonstrated contagion of any so-called viral illness. Not herpes, wow. not... Uh, not uh, AIDS, not the flu, not chicken pox, not measles, nothing. Right. Not one study. And I, I sort of dare anybody to send us a study that proves the opposite. In which case, I would say there's no reason to have studied this further. Right. Because... We already know that sick people don't make healthy people sick. Right. And so why look for an agent that makes sick people, healthy people sick when they're exposed to sick people? Right. 
But anyways, they did look for an agent. So here's how they did it. They took the snot or the lung fluid or blood of sick people, and they looked for bacteria and fungus, and they, already, they could see them. And they said, well, we know it's not that. So they filtered it or centrifuged it, and then they had the liquid part, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the part that something the size of a virus would be, okay? okay. So they call this the, a filterable agent, and we're talking 1910, 1900 to 1960 or so, 1950, right? So they took this filterable solution... Right, so it's all the liquid part from your mucus. Okay, that's where the virus would be, and they expose that to animals and people in an, in the normal way, like spraying it on them or squirting it up their nose. And here I'll make my next claim, which is there is not one study that shows that the filterable part of a sick person has made any healthy person or animal sick. Wow. Not one. Now, some of your listeners who may have looked into the literature will say, well, here's a study like from polio 1908. So here's what they did. They took the diseased uh, spine of some child who had polio. And they ground it up in a blender Jesus. and they filtered it. Right now. First question. Is the only thing in the liquid part of that ground up spine, is it only a virus? That would say no, I don't think so. Of course not. There's right. all kinds of crap. Different I mean, things, yeah. First of all, you don't even know there's a virus in there because you can't see it. Right, it's presupposed. But you know, you do know there's proteins and enzymes and maybe some other liquid, you know, soluble stuff. There's a lot of stuff in there. Right. Right. So we're not testing a virus. We're testing the the soluble liquid part of somebody's disease spine. Okay. So they take that, and they they couldn't make anybody sick with it. So they took two monkeys and they injected that right into their brain, <laughs> ten cc's, and one of the monkeys died and the other got paralyzed. And they said that proves that polio is a transmissible viral disease. What? And and when I when and that that was the proof that polio is a transmissible viral disease. Or they didn't say the word virus. They said filterable agent, right? Because they got the dead the bacteria out of there. Now, to me, that doesn't prove anything except if you're a monkey and somebody wants to inject 10 cc's of disease spinal stuff into your brain that's what's called having a bad day yeah i so no control they didn't inject 10 cc's of saline they didn't inject 10 cc's of milk they don't know if you, they just caused an allergic or anaphylactic reaction they didn't know if they the 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 Putting 10 C, and we're talking about a little monkey, right? This big right. head. Right. That caused a, he a herniation or a hemorrhage in their brain. Uh -huh. They have no idea what happened. They yeah. just, and, and that stuff has continued to this day. They'll take the soluble part of somebody, of the snot or, or lung fluid of somebody with COVID, they say COVID, uh -huh. and they filter it and they stick they squirt it down the lungs of of a ferret and the ferret gets a cough and they say that proves that uh, that uh, agent is transmissible now i don't know about you but squirting you know like filtered mucus down the 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 throat into the lungs of a animal <laughs> the size of a ferret with no control and then showing that the ferret coughs does not prove anything except ferrets don't like to be intubated and have, you know, filtered mucus shoved down their throat. Right. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. That totally makes sense. I'll, I'll I'll interject real quick to tell a very brief story. About two weeks ago, um, I had a piece of uh, food stuck in my esophagus. It's it's happened for the longest time in my life. I just have a smaller esophagus. Um, but when we changed our diet, I be that became a less occurrence. And I had to go to the hospital because I couldn't get it out. And they, well, they, I think they call it a food bolus. Um, so they had to actually do an endoscopy to kind of push it down. Well, they, the doctor did a follow-up because he did a biopsy and he said, I don't see any polyps or uh, anything that would cause me any kind of alarm, but I want to give you a Prilosec and I want you to come back in to stretch out your esophagus. And I was like, no, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I don't, first of all, I don't need Prilosec because I don't have acid reflux. I don't have heartburn. I don't have any of that stuff. I think it was just too big of a piece of meat. And um, needless to say, the doctor definitely did not like the fact that I was said, no, I don't want your medicine. Thank you very much. I'll chew yeah, my food better next time. You might just want to chew better. Yeah, that's, that's what my wife said too. Right. So, you know, so here we are now. Now we know that there's no transmission of illness, at least that we can't find a study. And when you take the liquid part, the part that would have the so-called virus in it, it doesn't trans, it, you can't make any animal or person sick with that. And so again, I asked the, the people who are saying that I'm wrong, what, show me the study that shows that it's, that that happened. And there isn't one. In which case, why would you go further with this? Like right. we know that the part that should have the virus doesn't make animals or people sick. What's the point? But anyways, they did go further with it. And they said, no, we have a different way of showing that the virus exists and causes disease. And let me walk you through that way. Okay. Okay. Now we're talking 1954 a paper by a guy named John Enders. Okay, so at this point, they can't see a virus. They've never made any animal or person sick with the part that should have the virus. And the whole person doesn't make anybody sick either. Right. So now they, get, they, they have to figure it out a different way of showing it. So they took a child with measles and they took their mucus, their snot, and they filtered it a little bit just to get the dead, you know, bacteria, the bacteria and the dead cells out. Then they mixed it with milk. And then they mixed it with fetal calf serum and horse serum and amniotic fluid of a, of a cow. And then they inoculated, which means spread it onto monkey kidney cells growing in a test tube. And then they, t they had these monkey kidney cells growing in a certain nutrient medium, uh -huh. and they changed the medium so that they had a lot less nutrients in the medium. So essentially they were started starving the kidney cells. And then they added two antibiotics to the to the mixture both of which are known to be poisonous to kidney cells <laughs> and then approximately three days later the kidney cells died called a cytopathic effect and they said that proves that the virus in the child with measles killed the kidney cells and that to this day, from that day on, is called the isolation, the proof there is a virus. Dear Lord. Now, here's what's interesting about the Ender study. He received a Nobel Prize, not exactly for that study, but similar. He did the whole thing, except instead of uh, starting with something from the mucus of somebody with measles, he started with nothing. So he took the horse serum and the fetal calf serum and the amniotic fluid, and he put those on a monkey kidney cell, and he took away the nutrients, and he added the antibiotics, and you know what happened? The kidney cells died. 
and he said the results of this part of the experiment were indistinguishable from when he also added the measles sample. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that tells me that it wasn't the measles sample and there wasn't there was no evidence that there was a virus in that sample they didn't see a virus they didn't look for a virus they just said the cells dying proved there was a virus but what he actually proved is that starving poisoning and adding all kinds of horse serum to growing kidney cells that are highly inbred uh, is what killed the kidney cells not the measles stuff okay sorry there yeah there we go uh yeah so so what is the scientific con community's consensus of looking at those two studies by mr enders and saying that even though the, the um, result are indeterminable they're not different how do they still look at the first one and say yep viruses contagion uh, every single virologist and medical doctor that I've talked to about this never heard of the Ender study. Wow. And to this day, there's, uh, let me just take a guess, 10,000 papers in the medical scientific literature with the title something like the isolation of HIV, SARS-CoV-2, measles virus, chickenpox virus, smallpox virus whatever right 10,000 papers every single one of them did that exact same procedure with a little bit of change sometimes instead of now instead of horse serum they use fetal calf serum okay and sometimes instead of of streptomycin and penicillin they use genomycin and amphotericin which are even more toxic to kidney cells wow and every single one, there is not, that is the definition of isolation. And isolation means proving the existence. Because if you've never isolated something, like if I said to you, how, isolate a hammer from the toolbox and show that it, it, it makes nails go into the wall. Okay. Right? Right. The, what you do is you go to your toolbox and you see if there's a hammer in there and you pull out only the hammer okay and then you take a nail and you bang it and you see if if the nail goes into the wall okay now what if i said brian i'm going to prove there's a hammer and hammers make nails go into the wall so i go to your toolbox and i don't open it so i don't know what's in there and I take the toolbox and I bang it against a nail and the nail goes into the wall. And I say, Brian, I've now proven that hammers exist and they make nails go into the wall. Okay. What would you say? I don't think so. Why not? Because you didn't open the toolbox. What difference does that make? Uh, you didn't prove that anything existed. Right. I, you don't even know a hammer's in there. Right. And it, even if a hammer is in there... How do you know it wasn't the toolbox and the hammer? Or, or something else that might have been in the toolbox. Right. How do you know? And so they have snot from somebody with measles. They have no idea what's in there. And they, they even if it was, even if it was j just the snot that killed the kidney cells, you have no idea because you didn't even look for a virus. But that, you... you People have to really understand this. That is the proof of that viruses exist. That right there is the proof. Because every study after that, if they want to get the sequence of the virus, right? Uh -huh. Right, right, right. If they want to show a picture of the virus. They show it from the cell culture broken down. Okay. Now, so, so we actually repeated that experiment from Enders, we being Stefan Lenka and Andy Kaufman and I, and, 
and we took here's what we did we took cells growing and they grew fine right and then we added a little bit of antibiotics and kept the nutrients the same and added fetal calf serum okay and the cells grew fine and then we did the next step and you know i i can show you well i i won't bother to show it could take me a while sure so we did a next step and we changed we basically did the same thing and added a, a little bit different concentration of fetal calf serum mm -hmm. and a little bit of antibiotics and uh the nutrients were the normal nutrients and the cells did fine and then we added the same amount of antibiotics step three and the same nutrient blend and the same amount of fetal calf serum to the cells step three and the cells broke down we didn't add anything from anybody who was sick we didn't add anything that contained a virus and we showed that the reason the cells died was because we added the antibiotics and we took away the nutrients okay and then we did step four same antibiotics as every isolation experiment so-called isolation same nutrients same fetal calf serum and we added uh, rna from yeast so-called rna from yeast and the cells broke down <clears throat> again proving there was no virus in there the reason cells break down is because you poison them and starve them and the reason we did step four is because we added this yeast we then found the genome for SARS-CoV-2 the virus that causes COVID in the mixture in the same assembly process in other words they don't find the genome they have millions of little bits of 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 sequences and they put those in a computer and it assembles that into a so-called genome and in silico in the computer genome and they say that proves there was a virus we we got the same genome but there was nothing from anybody with covid all there was was kidney cells fetal calf serum and yeast and that by the way we told the computer then to make the measles virus genome right there was okay. nothing from anybody with measles and it made measles virus genome wow we told it to make hiv it made hiv proving that these are just if you take millions of bits of of this chemicals and align them or assemble them on onto a template you can make any genome you want it's exactly like the process the analogy that i like to help explain it if i i said to you brian i want you to make an exact replica of king beauregard's castle out of this 10 million pieces of lego okay okay that and i'm going to give you money if you can do it okay okay you have to make an exact replica of the castle here's 10 million pieces of lego go all right can you do it i would say i probably can't why not uh well it wouldn't be to scale i wouldn't know the dimensions i wouldn't know the interior design the the exact layout uh, i wouldn't know any of that i would have to just do my best guess right you'd make something up right yeah uh-huh so here's so and so here's how they came up with that first genome for SARS-CoV-2 right so in other words the, and if I said what would help you to to make the exact replica of this castle with Lego uh I would say maybe some schematics and blueprints of some sort yeah you'd have to see the picture right mm -hmm. right or the schematics or the blueprint or the dimensions or something right but if you think the first one you you so here's SARS-CoV-2. They take somebody who they allege has COVID, which was a made-up disease, and they essentially took their mucus 
and they ground it up into little pieces, and they had 56 million uh, of little pieces of RNA in the mixture. Now, they'd never seen this virus. They never, they had no idea what the genome was, right? Okay. The name is, you don't know what this castle is supposed to look like. So they tell, so they tell the computer to arrange the pieces that fit together into the genome, right? Same as you would say, okay, well, I'll give you a million dollars if you, so you start piecing the Lego pieces together. Okay. Yeah, right, right. And they did it with two different programs. One program came out with 340 some thousand different possibilities. <laughs> and the other came out with 1.1 million different possibilities. Right? Just like what happened with you. If you piece Lego pieces together and they gave you 10 years to do it, right. you come out with, you know, a thousand different possibilities. Correct. You have no idea which one is right. Right. So you know what they did? What did they, they do? They chose the longest one. <laughs> and they said Science. it's 89% similar to the previous coronavirus, which was done in exactly the same way. Wow. And, and, then, and then it didn't quite fit. 89% is not very close. Like humans and chimpanzees have 96% homology. Uh, so 89% is not even close. Right. But even then, when you actually, uh, if you rerun the data, right? So they have this 56 million pieces of, of, of sequences that they mm -hmm. align or assemble into one long piece. And they get a million possibilities uh, it turns out that it wasn't that similar. They had to fudge it to add things manually after. And the reason we know that is because when they published the final the genome from this uh, this assembly process, if you go back and look at the uh, the data and try to assemble it, you cannot come up with that long piece. Right. They had to have made it individually to make it look somewhat similar to the previous coronavirus, meaning they knew they were trying to make a coronavirus before they even started. So that is something that um, I was actually discussing just last night, not exactly that but along the scientific community using the scientific method, they presuppose a lot of what they do. So they, they assume the outcome of what they're looking for and they try to find that. And then they assume that they found it based on the fact that they believe it must be there. Yes. Not science. That's what's called science. They <laughs> said there's got to be a coronavirus. So they chose, you see, they'll tell you and, and this is basically a lie that, well, when you do this assembly, it only fits in one way, mm. right? Like the Lego pieces only fit to make the castle that's the real castle. But that is a outright fabrication because the original study, they had a million different possibilities, a million. And there was no reason to choose this one as opposed to the other one. And by the way, as I just said, you cannot even get that one they chose by going by action because we did that with two different biostatisticians. We get that we they used the data from the study and they could not come up with that genome. Wow. In other words, they they had to have fraudulently uh, added some pieces and taken some out to make it even plausible. And by the way, that's how they claim there's sort of gain of function, which is total, the whole lab leak thing is just nonsense. as much nonsense as right. the rest of it. And because there is no virus, there is no genome, you cannot gain the function of something that doesn't exist. It's like having an argument over you know, what blew up buildings, uh, invisible unicorns or invisible exploding 
enhanced unicorns. Wow. You first have to show there's right. unicorns. Exactly. And there ain't no unicorns and there ain't no viruses and there's never been found. And when you ask the lab leak people, show me the virus, they, they don't even know how, how you would show a virus exists. Wow. They don't know even, I can't say that enough. And everybody who has a chance to interview or ask somebody who's espousing gain of function or lab leaks, just, you know, Joe Blow, how do you know there's a virus? He won't know. Right. And here's the answer. Everybody needs to, they do an, a cell culture experiment. They take the snot, they mix it on a cell culture, they take away the, the food and they poison it, and this, the culture breaks down. That is called isolation of the virus. And if you haven't isolated the hammer from the toolbox, there's no way to know what it's made of or what it does. Right. Right, Everybody 100%. can get that if you're talking about hammers. Somehow when you use the word virus, people say, oh, it's too complicated. I can't get this. Or there must be virus because Aunt Hilda, she said there was viruses. And she got sick when she and Uncle Fred went to the movies. Right. Right. Which doesn't make any sense because uh, there's so many other anomalies that would arise, especially if you look at um like last year my wife and i and my and our son we we all got sick um it was about june july of last year and the time previous to that we hadn't been sick for like two years um, but my parents had come to visit us where we live um, we all were ex showing the same symptoms but my parents never got sick and they went home they never got sick so what would be science the science answer the scientific community answer of if what you had is contagious or they COVID, whatever you want to call it, how come they didn't catch the same thing? What would be the answer so, to that anomaly? So here's what happened when, when they realize, so basically what science is the process of when they're confronted with uh, their evidence of their own nonsense, they make up new nonsense to fool you. It's like W.C. Fields said, if you can't uh, dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit. <laughs> that should be on so, a t-shirt. So here's the explanation. So they would say, well, your parents were immune to the virus. In other words, you have an immune system which keeps you from getting the virus again. Now, <laughs> so first of all, there is no immune system and, and they made that up to make you think there were viruses. But for all the people who think that your immune system, meaning antibodies, somehow protect you with virus, against a virus, just think about this. So I was, went to medical school I learned you make antibodies so you don't, so you protect you against virus, right? Mm -hmm. You get the measles virus, then you get antibodies, and then you never get the measles virus again. Wow. Right? Then 1984 and Gallo and Montagne announced that they discovered the cause of AIDS, which was an HIV virus, right? How did they know? I still remember hearing this on the television because the people with AIDS had antibodies. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I graduated medical school in 1984. Like, fuck, who changed the rules? <laughs> they, I just spent four years learning that if you have antibodies, you're protected. And this guy just told me that if you have antibodies, that means you're going to die from the virus. Like, wow. Those both can't be true. Right. So then somebody obviously at some point said, you know, well, wait a minute. I thought antibodies mean you're protected. And he said, well, the HIV, that's a really wily smart virus.
<laughs> it knows how to evade your immune system. So now we have the category of stupid viruses like ah. measles. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to evade your immune system. Those basic ass viruses, yeah. The flu virus, that's a smart virus. That's why you get a different flu shot every year, because that one knows how to evade your immune system. And the <laughs> SARS-CoV-2, that's a that's like a really smart virus. Yeah. Because not only do you get it over and over and over again, uh, but some people don't get it over again. So they had a strain of a stupid SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. And what we're talking about here is the word reification fallacies. And it goes something like this. Uh, you know, I, I happen to know why all those buildings are, are, getting, are exploding in the Ukraine. It's because of invisible exploding unicorns. So, and, and uh, an invisible exploding unicorn is a really bad weapon. Like it explodes like crazy. And it's got all these fancy explosives and detonation devices. And it, it, it explodes all these buildings. And Tom, and somebody would say, Tom, how do you know that they're unicorns? Have you ever seen it? No. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you know they're unicorns? And I'd say, are you telling me that the buildings aren't exploded? <laughs> Science denier. Yeah. No, I didn't say the buildings aren't exploded. Right. I, and, and I'm saying that I can't say what the cause that it's unicorns because I'd never seen a unicorn. And so I can't ascribe it any characteristics. Right. Causation and correlation. Well, I can't even describe that it's in. Well, how do you know it's invisible? Well, Brian, because you can't see it. Right. It's got to be. It's got to be invisible. Otherwise, Naturally. I could see it. Naturally. So they say, well, why can't you see the, the viruses? Well, because they're too small and they're inside the cell and they hide, you know, so you can't see it. So like and ninjas. they make, they have a genome. How do you know it even has anything if you've never actually purified and isolated the virus? You don't. That's what's called a reification fallacy, meaning right. you take something that you don't know even exists and you ascribe it all these characteristics. It evades your immune system. How, how do you know that? All you know is that some people get sick over and over and some people don't. Yeah. That's all. That's the only observation. You don't know that there's something evading anything because you don't even know that that thing has been has not been shown to exist. Yeah. And most of science, you know, the fact that DNA makes it is our hereditary material. And DNA is a double helix and DNA is the same in all our cells and DNA is stable. All of those things have been disproven. Uh -huh. Yet we still believe them because, well, I, people say, are you saying I don't look like my father? I say, no, <laughs> I don't know if you look like your, but to say that that's because you have DNA. Right. That's a huge stretch. And you're going to have to prove that to me because it turns out that every tissue in your body has a different DNA. Right. So how, and they say that DNA works through making proteins, right? Mm -hmm. One gene makes one protein. That's the central fact of genetics. Then they do this human genome project, find out 200,000 genes uh, sorry, 200,000 proteins, 10,000 or so genes. Where do the other 190 come from? Wow. They don't know. Wow. That's so they so make up stuff like, well, the genes rearrange themselves uh -huh. to make new. <laughs> I mean, that's. There it is. And I, I would say I believe that's actually on top of reification. They beg the question and then reify it. Yes which is which is absolutely incredible and 
So, okay, so kind of getting towards the end of the show here, this you brought up earlier when we were talking about Mr. Ender's experiment with, you said, how do we know they didn't cause an anaphylactic shock or an allergic reaction or something like that from it being injected into the monkey brain? And I wanted to tell you a quick story, and I, I wanted to get your perspective on it, because this is something that has recently been introduced to me. So, long story short... Since the time my, my mom switched me from breast milk to cow's milk, I am allergic to cow's milk. Now, I'm not lactose intolerant. I'm anaphylaxic, right? I've gone into anaphylaxic shock three times that I can remember as a child because of cow's milk. Um, and four or five times it started because of antibiotics. I'm allergic to um, uh, C-Chlor, Suprax, Sulfa, Biaxin, Augmentin, uh, all Cillins. They're all anaphylaxic. I know that because I took them. So after my wife and I get married, we take our honeymoon. We go to Ireland. And for whatever reason, I don't know why. Maybe it's just fate. I ended up trying butter out there from Irish cows. Now, I didn't know at the time, but in, in I can't say it's for every European country, but in Ireland, it's specifically that if an antibiotic has to be given to any kind of livestock out there, their byproducts cannot be used for human consumption. So they don't get antibiotics. They don't get growth, growth hormones. And if they have that, you can't use the byproduct. Anyways, so I ended up meeting with another podcaster out there. And he, I was telling him a story about milk and I tried butter and I didn't have a reaction. And he said, well, how do you know, how do you know that you're actually allergic to the milk and you're not just allergic to what they give the cows in America? And I said, well, that makes a little bit more sense because I know a hundred percent I'm allergic to the antibiotics. I go into anaphylaxic shock. But I don't know if I'm allergic to cow's milk that has never been given an antibiotic and XYZ, whatever else. I've never made that determination. But to this day, I can still eat something like a Kerrygold, which is a butter from Ireland. I can have Kerrygold cheese from Ireland. But um, just a few months ago, my wife accidentally made something that had buttermilk in it, and I started going into anaphylaxic shock. Um, what would you say on, on that? So the whole concept of allergy and, and anaphylaxis hinges on the fact of an immune system, which it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's happening is you're being poisoned, and you it's a complicated reasons why you have learned to make an aggressive inflammatory reaction against certain poisons because your body recognizes that they're bad for you, mm -hmm. like antibiotics and whatever else they put into milk. And so every time you get exposed to that, your body tries to eliminate that. And it does that by the only way it knows how, which is unfortunately what we call sickness which is using inflammation to get rid of dead cells and stuff that's been poisoned. That's what's happening. Wow. Okay. That makes, that makes a lot of sense because, um, my, my son, right. We, I, I was uh, worried, um, after my wife had, had given birth the first time we started trying foods and stuff like that. Like, um, and he's, he's two and he's not quite talking yet. He does a little bit more babbling. He says a few words. Um, but I, I, I told my wife, I said, you know, I, I don't know if I want him to try dairy until he can communicate well enough to be like, Hey mom, dad, something feels weird. Um, because I was just so afraid cause I know what I went through as a child and I'm sure it scared the shit out of my parents each and every time it happened. Um, but, but he's had all that stuff and he seems to not be allergic to to anything but again we eat a very clean strict diet i mean that kid has probably never i don't even think he's ever had anything with corn syrup or dyes or any of that because we're very particular about what we give him um but you, you had originally brought up too about um hereditary traits and genes and it, it would seem that that um i don't know if science as a whole or 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 uh, that community is eliminating that thought process because there's just nothing to it. Because even when we had asked the pediatrician, which we don't even go to the doctor anymore, um, because he told us, since you're not vaccinating your kid, you don't need to see me unless something happens. Um, he said, there's really no evidence to suggest that 
if hereditarily your father and your mother are allergic to, let's say, walnuts, that your son or your daughter will absolutely be allergic to walnuts. There's no science to say that that would be, even be the case. Uh, that's true, which is unusual for a doctor to say anything that's true. But uh, <laughs> what? But the other thing to realize is that one of the main drivers of inflammatory reactions is fear. Mm -hmm. So if you go into it with the fear that this is going to hurt them, you may uh, create this self-fulfilling prophecy. And it, does it play off that toro, toro, what's it called, toroidal field? That I mean, we're, we're you know, it, that's a big subject, but we're, we are not a biochemistry set. We're a electromagnetic field that's, that's a, the composite of all the energies that come into a living system. Mm -hmm. And they in, impact our water and create life. And the one of the best ways to mess with that system is to make the people or the animals afraid if you see it with animals they get afraid and they do all kinds of things right that's what we determined that if we ever have like a chewy steak or something like that we're like man this cow was probably stressed out when it died it is it was not a good piece of meat right <laughs> right so <clears throat> you know but you know essentially what i mean what i'm saying is our entire concept of biology and medicine needs to be re-examined because it's killing us. I would 100% agree. And and I'll, I'll end with this as we get towards the end of the show. Um, another comment I'll give to you. So um, both my wife and I, and we had somebody else on our show. His name is Ryan Alexander, and he was the one that kind of introduced us a little bit to this topic. But he got us on this product called Longevity um, from Dr. Wallach's. Um, obviously, and actually we're, we're an affiliate with your vegetable powder garden. We use those all the time as well, uh, live by them. Um, but, uh, my wife and I are both HPV positive and it's the funniest thing in the world to me because she doesn't get pap smears or anything like that anymore. But when she would, the nurse would always call her back and be like, man, your pap smears, it was unclear. When do you want to start treatment? And she's like, I never, I don't want to start treatment. And so ryan alexander when we had him on he was talking about the fact how the sooner you're diagnosed and the sooner you start treatment and generally speaking statistically is the sooner you start dying from whatever yeah there's an easy cure for a a any positive viral test 100 percent cure is never take the test again yeah <laughs> works the same it. with high cholesterol 100% works. Never take another cholesterol test. I love it. I There's love no it. meaning to HPV positive because there's yep. no HPV. And antibodies are known. Even the, the, the world's leading expert on antibodies says there is no antibody specificity. None. Wow. So that test is completely bogus. It's meaningless. Wow. This has been incredible. Well, Dr. Callan, listen, we're, we're at 58 minutes. Why don't we go ahead and wrap up here? Um, is there anything else you'd like to share? A, a website, your books, where people can find and support you? Anything like that? Uh, Dr. Tom Cowan is the main website, and there's also Dr. Cowan's Garden. And we do a lot of videos and all kinds of stuff perfect yeah let me show i'll show that here that's so that's dr go. dr Cow, dr tom cowan uh, and this is where you could find your your books and your, your some some other things because I, I i think i remember hearing that contagion myth was banned from amazon yeah <laughs> that doesn't make any sense uh yeah. so yeah you did change the title and then here is uh that's we live Cowan's in a free country oh absolutely i have all the license and permits to prove it yeah so and here is dr cowan's garden like we had mentioned earlier and you've added a lot since then since we've even seen it um yeah that's linked on our website because we are an affiliate with that um but uh, any anyhow this has been a a fantastic conversation i want to thank you for your time um we're right at an hour here so we'll go ahead and end it um Hopefully we can do this again in the future with some of my other co-hosts. I'm sure they have some questions for you. 
But um, this has been a, a fantastic interview. And I, I, like, again, I, I, your research, your publications have really changed my family's life. And I couldn't thank you enough for it. And hopefully this interview reaches other people and, and maybe they start bettering their own lives from this information and doing their own research. So I, I thank you again. Okay. Take care, Brian. Hang awesome. in there. Will do. Thanks so much. And um, we'll, we'll see you guys next, uh, next episode. This has been Whiskey, Beer, and Conspiracy Podcast. Take care. Okay, thank you.